Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast, where we are reading through the Bible in a year following the Everyday with Jesus Bible reading plan available through the Christian Standard Bible website. We are in week 29, that's days 197 through 203, and we'll be talking about 1 Corinthians 10 through 24 and Acts 15, 22 through chapter 19. Now, I say that we'll be talking about this, and I suppose I'm using the royal we because, once again, we had some schedule conflict and some sickness with the other guys on the podcast, so I'm going to be going solo on this episode again, but hopefully for the last time, it sounds like AJ's starting to get better, so you can be praying for him, and my summer travels have come to an end. The last couple of weeks, I was in Kansas City and then Georgia, which resulted in some schedule conflicts, so hopefully all three of us will be back in the studio together for next week's edition of the podcast. But for today, it's just me recording from home and hoping just to talk briefly about a few observations in our Bible reading today. So we begin in 1 Chronicles 10 that records the death of Saul and his sons. Um, Saul died in battle. The Philistines gruesomely beheaded him, hung his skull in a temple of one of their gods, Dagon, and uh, they declared the good news of his death to all their people and to their idols. There's an explanatory note that gives the theological interpretation of Saul's death. Why did he die? Verse 13, Saul died for his unfaithfulness to the Lord because he did not keep the Lord's word. He even consulted a medium for guidance, but he did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. This introduces an important theme that will surface in the rest of our reading, the theme of inquiring of the Lord, coming to the Lord to seek his instruction and guidance and wisdom, obedience to his instruction when he gives it. We'll see instances where that does happen, and we'll see other instances of failure during the rest of our reading. We get to chapter 11, where David is anointed as king. All Israel came together and said to David, Here we are, your own flesh and blood. And they appeal to David to be their king. They say that they recognize that the Lord is appointing him as a shepherd over Israel, that David will be the ruler. So all of the elders come to David. They make a covenant together in the Lord's presence. And David is anointed as king over Israel in keeping with the Lord's word through Samuel. Now, uh, David begins to grow in power. He is ruling well over Israel, so it seems he's defeating his enemies. He has these warriors who are lined up um, in support of him. And at the end of chapter 12, there's this word that there was an abundant provision of flour, fig cakes, raisins, wine and oil, herds and flocks. Indeed, there was joy in Israel. So when God's king is ruling over the land... There is great joy in the land. 
But as we think about David's appointment as a king, his identification as Israel's own flesh and blood, um, his role as a shepherd ruler, many make the connection to Jesus, the greater ruler and shepherd who became flesh and blood to identify with his people in not just with Israel, but with the whole of humanity. So in these texts, there's David, this great king, and it points forward to Jesus, the greater king, the better king. Uh, There are parallels, there are points of connection, but there are also differences, as we'll find out when, when David later commits sin before the Lord. Jesus, the true shepherd king, never did. So sometimes when we're reading the Old Testament, we try to make connections. We see how different events and people prefigure Jesus in his role as the Messiah. And sometimes those connections can be a little bit strained. This one might be a little bit strained, uh, but I think it's there nonetheless. In David, we have a prefiguring of his greater son, Jesus, who would be the perfect shepherd ruler over not just Israel, but the entire world. In chapter 13, we have this interesting incident where David is with the leaders of Israel. He consults with them, and he tells Israel, we should go get the Ark of the Covenant. We should bring it back. And the rationale was so that they could inquire of God. They could seek God's counsel and wisdom. They could be in God's presence. But ironically, with all of the inquiring that David does here, as he consults with the leaders and the commanders of Israel, he never actually consults with God to inquire how or when they should bring the Ark of the Covenant back. Um, So along the way, this guy Uzzah reaches out because one of the oxen had stumbled and he reaches out to try to study the ark and God's anger burns against him and strikes him dead. And David at first is angry and then he becomes fearful of the Lord and they sort of put a pause on everything. They drop the ark off at this guy's house, Obed-Edom of Gath, and they move on. Um, So there's a really bizarre instance where um, David is not consulting the Lord for proper procedure and guidelines, even as he's attempting to do something admirable, perhaps. Um, And it's not until chapter 15 when David says, look, we, we didn't actually follow God's instructions here. So 1513 interprets what happens in chapter 13. David says, for the Lord, our God burst out in anger against us because you Levites were not with us for the first time, for we didn't inquire of him about the proper procedures. So sometimes we have trouble understanding what happened in chapter 13. Well, it's explained later in chapter 15. Essentially, David and Israel did not inquire of the Lord. They did not follow his instructions for moving the ark. We see this shift starting in chapter 14, where David does start inquiring of the Lord in his military campaigns and otherwise. So in chapter 14, verse 10, David inquired of the Lord how he should be going about his his army attacks. And the Lord responds and gives him right instruction. So we do see a little bit of a shift in the way that David actually does make good on his, his intentions to inquire of the Lord. Finally, they do bring the ark 
back, and David is with those who are leading the ark back, carrying the ark back. And uh, as it's entering the city, David's leaping and dancing. And his wife looks out the window, and she sees David leaping and dancing, and she despises him in her heart. We've talked about this before when we were discussing this scene. I believe it was in Second Samuel. And it's it's difficult to know exactly what to make of this scene, what, what judgment is being rendered here. I'm not altogether certain. Um, I think we can empathize with Saul's daughter, Michael, a little bit because David's taken other wives and he at the same time is showing delight before the Lord, you know, so so maybe she sees him as somewhat hypocritical. Maybe that's a narratival insight allowing us to see that David isn't perfect. There, there are reasons that he would be despised or even for all of the love that Israel seems to have for him, there are people who wouldn't have that love for him. Um, it's it's hard for me to say. So if you have any insights to that, uh, shoot it my way. I'd be interested in in thinking about this a little bit more. And then in chapters 16 and 17, um, David blesses the Lord. He praises the Lord. He appoints people to fulfill priestly roles and to lead Israel in worship. So chapter 16 essentially reads as a psalm. It's like a a psalm that you might find in the Psalter, uh, where David is praising the Lord, recounting the way that God made a covenant with Abraham, and he led his people out of Egypt. He defied all the other gods, and now he's establishing Israel forever and ever. And he is ready to instruct people to do everything that's written in the law of the Lord. So he appoints Asaph and his relatives. There are individuals who day and night will be worshiping the Lord. And these individuals, probably we could think of them somewhat similar as monks in a monastic order who who have their whole vocation and calling to rise in the morning and worship the Lord and in the evening to worship the Lord and throughout the day uh, be concerned with care for um, everything that is involved with the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and, and all the rest. Well, in chapter 17, we get to a really important section in Israel's history and David's life. That's a, this place where the Lord makes a covenant with David. And as you read chapter 17, you'll hear echoes of the covenants that God made with Abraham and the reiterations of the, that covenant with Isaac and Jacob. So it's really like David joins the rest of Israel's founding fathers, the patriarchs, and, and perhaps even surpasses them as God covenants to establish David as the king over Israel forever. Ever. He speaks to him in fatherly language. So 1713 um, is he's talking about David's descendant Solomon. I will be his father and he will be my son. I will not remove my faithful love from him as I removed it from the one who was before you. That is Saul. I will appoint him over my house and my kingdom forever and his throne will be established forever. So this is highly significant in the progression of the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. And then also it's significant because we, from the start, realize that David is not going to be Israel's greatest king. He's not going to be the greatest ruler over God's house. 
um, his son will. And then as we learn, as we continue reading, even Solomon is not going to be the greatest. Once again, we're directed to look forward to a greater son, the son, Jesus Christ. As we read, we continue to hear more of David's military campaigns and exploits. And then we get to chapter 21, where there's the incident where David counts the people of Israel. He takes a census. And I think probably the best way to understand this is that David is relying on the military might of Israel and no longer really relying on the the strength of the Lord. So he initiates the census. Joab, the kind of main commander of his army, sort of warns against it in verse 3, but David didn't listen. His order prevailed over Joab, and as a result, David is offered three choices of punishment, pretty much, and David chooses the one that would most connect directly to God's action, so more God's direct action being poured out um, with the angel of the Lord bringing destruction. So David says, let me fall into the Lord's hands because his mercies are great, but don't let me fall into human hands. And at the end of the scene where David sees the angel of the Lord with this terrible sword where he is exercising judgment on Israel, David recognizes that ultimately it's his sin. He's acted wickedly. So in verse 17, he says, but these sheep, referring to Israel, what have they done? He asks that God's hand would be against him. And God complies. He he listens to David. David goes to buy a threshing floor to build an altar, and he insists on paying the full price. Again, we hear some echoes of Abraham's interactions with the inhabitants of the land when he's buying the cave to bury his wife. But David's insisting on buying the full price, and then um, David offers a sacrifice on his behalf and on behalf of Israel. But then there's this note at the end of the chapter where David could not go before uh, the, the altar to inquire of God because he was terrified of the sword of the Lord's angel. Now, we could think about this in a few different ways, but I just want to emphasize that David, again, I think is acting as a prefigurement of Christ, but Christ, of course, does this in a better way where Christ, on behalf of the sheep, becomes uh, the sacrifice who bears God's wrath. So he he builds an altar, so to speak, as he uh, proceeds towards the cross and he acts as the sacrifice on the altar to avert God's wrath on people. David does this in a smaller way here, uh, but unlike Jesus, he is not able to enter into the presence of God without fear. Um we have Jesus as our intercessor on our behalf, who stands before God pleading on our behalf, and and he does so without fear because his sacrifice is perfect and he himself is perfect. Well, David is not that um, great priestly king. Jesus is, but we get sort of a prefigurement of it here in chapter 21. 
Then in chapter 22, in following, David wants to build a temple. He knows that he is not the one who's going to do this. So he, uh, in his lifetime, to help Solomon out, begins to set aside supplies and money so that Solomon will be able to accomplish building this great and glorious temple. Uh, But it's not going to be David who does it. It's going to be Solomon. And as he speaks to his son Solomon, he tells him in chapter 22, verse 19, you need to determine in your mind, in your heart to seek the Lord. Um, this, this is what uh, Solomon needs to do. And we'll find that Solomon begins this initially, and then he'll fail to do it. He'll fail to seek God with his whole heart. But David installs Solomon while he's still alive as the king over Israel, sort of ensuring a smooth transition. He appoints priests who will uh, pronounce blessings in the name of the Lord forever. Uh, They'll stand every morning to give thanks and praise to the Lord and likewise in the evening. And then we wrap up in chapter 24 with the divisions of the priests, and that's going to continue on in our reading for next week. Let's give a brief book promo for Eugene Peterson's book called The Invitation, A Simple Guide to the Bible. As we've been making our way through the Bible reading plan, you may feel like you've already forgotten most of what you've already read, and you're a little bit intimidated by the fact that there are many books left to encounter in this Bible reading journey. You might feel like you aren't able to summarize the main points and features and message of each book along the way, and that's okay. Uh, It's hard to remember everything that we've read, and that's where this book becomes really helpful. In about one to five pages covering each book of the Bible, he summarizes some of the main themes. He gives some direction in thinking about how to read, and, and it serves as a helpful reminder for these large books of the Bible that we've been reading through so quickly. So I would encourage you, if you have not picked up Peterson's book called The Invitation, it may serve as a helpful reference as you seek to recall the main features of the books of the Bible that we've read so far. We turn our attention now to our New Testament reading, which is Acts 15 verses 22 through the end of chapter 19. I talked a lot about the Jerusalem Council and the letter to the Gentile believers in the last episode, so I'm going to just read the letter that was sent that starts in verse 23 of chapter 15. From the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours, not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. So this is the letter that's sent to the Gentile churches. And I think it's interesting that in our reading for this section, uh, Paul essentially founds the church at Corinth in chapter 18. Uh, But prior to that, as this letter has been sent out and as Paul goes 
on his missionary journeys as he's planting the churches, he's essentially communicating what was in that letter. So they're strengthening the church in their faith, they're giving these instructions, and they're starting churches. And it's interesting to me that when we read 1 Corinthians, a letter to this church at Corinth that apparently started here in chapter 18, Paul is talking to them about issues of sexual immorality and food offered to idols. So it seems to me that probably the Corinthian church was aware of the judgment by the Jerusalem council, and they chose to defy it and to pursue their own practices. And Paul, in that letter, is now not just reiterating the letter, but he's trying to explain where they've gone wrong and how to be thinking about these issues. It's also interesting that in our reading in Acts, we come across Apollos, who's an eloquent speaker. He's in Corinth. We see that in chapter 19. And when Paul starts out the letter to the Corinthians, he's dealing with this issue of them breaking into factions and following after different speakers and leaders, and one of those is Apollos. So there's a lot of continuity between our reading in Acts and what we'll find later when we get to 1 Corinthians. But jumping into chapter 16, Paul encounters a man named Timothy. Yes, that's the Timothy who he will write to in the letters bearing that name in the New Testament. And he begins traveling with Timothy, bringing him along with him. Um, And as they're going through those towns, as I already mentioned, they're delivering the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. So they're going about, um, this is really action-packed. There are situations where Paul and his companions are imprisoned, uh, but then they preach the gospel, they're delivered. Uh, We come to this account of Paul and Silas in prison where the Philippian jailer is guarding them. There's an earthquake, and apparently he's been hearing their message because he knows after the earthquake that they can answer his question, what must I do to be saved? So he believes in the Lord. He and his household are baptized, and this is just a common pattern that appears over and over again. Another pattern that appears is that Paul goes into the synagogue. He teaches from the scriptures, explaining that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This happens over and over. There are some people who are amenable to this message and they receive it. There are others who reject it for various reasons. Uh, Sometimes it's because people are jealous that Paul is gathering a following. Sometimes it's because they misunderstand the message, like in chapter 17, verse 7, where they are getting the fact that Paul is proclaiming the gospel of King Jesus in the kingdom of God, but they're not understanding the relationship between King Jesus and Caesar. Uh, So they're beat again, you know, throughout this time, they they experience some persecution and suffering, but they persevere in spreading the gospel, calling everyone everywhere to repent. We have an interesting scene where Paul is in Athens, and he's speaking with those who are worshiping false gods, who are worshiping idols, and some are convinced and others are not. Um, We've already talked a little bit about the founding of the Corinthian church in chapter 18 um, and 19. And then Paul stays in a spot for three months, teaching and 
preaching about the kingdom of God. And then he takes some disciples and he teaches in a lecture hall for two years, uh, instructing people in the faith. Um, he is performing miracles. He's casting out evil spirits. He's healing people. It's interesting that even um, face cloths and aprons that has touched his skin were brought to the sick and their diseases left them. So when we read in 1 Corinthians as Paul is dealing with this issue of spiritual gifts, if anyone can speak authoritatively to the right use of spiritual gifts and prophecy and healing and speaking in tongues, it's going to be Paul who's... Um, using these spiritual gifts, who's been empowered by the Lord to do these things in, in his ministry. The only other thing that I want to mention is that in our reading in Acts, we come across a situation where there are individuals in chapter 17 who are upset about the proclamation of the gospel, and they go to the city officials and they say that these men have turned the world upside down. Uh, they're realizing that the gospel message is changing the social order. It's changing the way of things. It's changing religious beliefs. And they are seeing this as turning the world upside down. Well, there's a book bearing this name by a guy named Kevin Rowe called World Upside Down. And he just simply points out that where, where everyone sees that the world is being turned upside down, they're saying the message of the gospel is making things not right anymore. In reality, it's turning the world right side up. The world has been upside down for a long, long time, and it's only in the proclamation of the gospel that it is being set in order once again. So we hear those words of condemnation that these people are turning the world upside down, and we can understand it more rightly as the gospel sets things right. It turns the world right side up. It puts things back in order as the kingdom of God is proclaimed and made evident. As people repent, they believe, they're baptized, and they continue in the faith. Well, we'll pick up our reading next week, hopefully with a full podcast panel here. Hopefully we'll be joined again with AJ and Matthew as we continue to read through the Bible in the year. Once again, I just want to encourage you to keep reading. Keep reading, even though it's a lot of material, even though you're going to forget things, just because you forget something that you read doesn't mean that you aren't being shaped by it. This is true of the Bible. It's true of other books. Often we're shaped in ways that we don't even realize as we read and think about issues. And I think even more importantly, we need to encounter the Bible. We need to encounter it as a whole. We certainly need to study it deeply in its individual parts. But we want to understand those parts in light of the whole, even if we can't keep that whole consciously in our mind all of the time. Reading through the Bible in a year is a really important way of, of getting this done, of putting smaller texts and books in context of reading the Bible as a unified whole. So let's continue in this project together, um, even, even as it is perhaps challenging as we encounter texts of scripture that are difficult to interpret, difficult to understand, and perhaps even more difficult to remember as we move on to the next section. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. You can learn more at resurrectionmn.org.